Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoot. And I'm Coach John Shoot. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Hello, I'm Matt Bush, the news director for Blue Ridge Public Radio, and I also produce Going Deep with the Shoops. The 2019 NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament will undoubtedly be remembered for many things. One of them happened early on the first full day of the tournament. As Michigan State struggled to put away underdog Bradley, Spartans head coach Tom Izzo started yelling at freshman star Aaron Henry as he approached the bench during a timeout. Izzo became so heated as he yelled that other Spartan players had to restrain him. The controversy this sparked may have been predictable, bouncing between those who felt it was just old-fashioned hard coaching, others who saw it as bullying, and every place in between. Our hosts at the start of this episode seek to put the incident in greater context and perspective, not just in coaching and college athletics, but our society as a whole. I heard about it before I saw it. And when I heard about it, um, I really wanted to watch the tape of it. And when I saw the tape, the first thing I thought to myself was, that's not as bad as I thought that it was. He approached a young freshman, Aaron Henry, uh, as he was walking off the court, and he wagged his finger right in his face, had to be restrained, And then when they got into their huddle, he again rose out from his chair and started yelling directly at Aaron Henry and had to be restrained. And I'll be honest, when I watched the clip, I thought to myself, I know I've done that before. I know I've been in the face of people like that before. Uh, And But you're right. A lot of times I think that when a coach is just yelling at a player – uh, it's because they don't have something else to say, something practical. In the NFL, that never would have happened. A coach would never yell at a player like that in the NFL because the player wouldn't take it. And uh, in the NFL, and that's where I started coaching, you strictly just have to instruct players and try to motivate them. You can never yell or demean them. It just wouldn't happen in the NFL. In college, though, the power relation is so different. What Tom Izzo did there would never go over on an NBA team or in professional sports. The thing that got me uh, maybe most riled up was Tom Izzo's comments after when he said, To the media, uh, really, he was unapologetic about the episode, and he said, quote, I don't know what kind of business you're in, but I'll tell you what, if I was the head of a newspaper and you didn't do your job, you'd be held accountable. I understand where he's coming from, but this isn't a job. The NCAA has said that time and time again. This isn't a job. And so that comment was really more jarring to me than watching the video. 
But having said that, uh, I've also read comments from other people, our friend Bamani Jones as well, that I know Marsha's going to comment on that really when I look back at it now, uh, the more I think about it, the more alarmed I become. But uh, I know I've been that coach before who's really got caught up in the intensity. The power dynamic here, as John was saying, between the NFL and the NCAA, or just a professional sport and a collegiate sport, is unmistakable mm-hmm. when we analyze the reaction to this. Yeah. Well, I one of the things I hear listening to you is just what a bubble you know, kind of the world of sports is, and John can look at that and say, oh, that's not so bad. And what I said when I watched it is white America does not understand how traumatizing Mm -hmm. it is for people of color to watch a white, powerful man that has control over one's station in life ripping a new one for a young black man. I mean, that's generational trauma in this country it's kind of like a white woman's tears you know like those are traumatizing because bad things happen when powerful white men get mad bad things happen when white women cry and so i had a visceral reaction against it just that the optics of that of this white man just screaming at this young african-american man um Definitely, I found it deeply offensive. I understand coaching people hard, and I don't think that's what that was about. That was about kind of a a hostility. That it seemed to me, if I could read um, the the kind of um, dynamics of the group, and he was being restrained by another player, by another young black player, that this ain't the first time they've seen their coach do that. And so, to me, it just felt like that that team dynamic is, you know, that's not the first time that has happened. I know that people have said oh it's not a big deal you know the snowflakes of today don't like to get right i think yeah. there's this that's where the i think this fits into our cultural discussion right, just, too yeah it's of you can't say anything can't anymore to people which and uh, if yeah. if anybody listening has read the book white fragility um there are t- like 28 things listed when white people that white people say um, when a racist act is called out, and and that's one of them. Well, I can't say anything anymore. You know, you can't you can't coach people hard anymore. I mean, that's kind of the version of that. And so, that's a quadrant in in our society where there is a clear, just real power disparity, and white people have more power than black people, and so that behavior matters. And and normalizing that and saying it's not a big deal, it, that's a problem for just, you know, just what our aspirations are about the way um, we want to be in relationship with each other. So that's my comment, but I know it's not very sporty. No, I, I actually, 
hear exactly what you're saying. And the more I think about it, the more that weighs on me. I think there's another element as well to this that was striking. I've gotten in arguments with players before. I've gotten in arguments with players in the NFL before. Pretty heated arguments. That's what I was going to say. You argued on the sidelines with players in the NFL. But players in the NFL, one, one thing that I've always talked about with players, and I would often say it the night before meeting, um, we're going to be on national TV tomorrow. Okay? We can have our differences. We can argue and things get heated. But let's just remember we're on national TV. We can argue in the locker room. We can argue during the TV timeout. We can. That was something that I openly talked to players about. Yeah. There's cameras everywhere. And that's something that I was always very aware of. Once we got back to the locker room, you know, we could have heated discussions for sure. The other thing is, um, the other thing is just the, the the thing you brought up about the what he said that this is a business. You know, when if it is a kind of business setting and someone is an employee and there's certain expectations, you know, again, it's not good, it's not right, but those are dynamics that happen in a workplace. But it's especially egregious to me that this is, again, something that's fed to us over and over again. This is an amateur. Um, this is a student. Um, can you imagine if a professor did that to a student? Can you imagine if a, the dean of students did that to a student? That would not be okay. And it should not be okay. But uh, to me, it just backlights that Revenue sports in college plays by different rules. You would not think it was okay for a mentor, a teacher, an administrator to treat a student that way. I remember in 1998 with the Carolina Panthers... We had a football coach on the sideline, a guy named Kevin Steele, who got in the face of Kevin Green, the great pass rusher and linebacker and Hall of Famer now. I remember that. Kevin Steele, Coach Steele, started yelling at Kevin Green. Kevin Green got up, grabbed him, and popped him. Right on, was the on the sideline. Side popped him right on the sideline. I saw it from the seats. And I wonder, and and. Everybody on our team, everybody thought <laughs> Kevin Green's the most badass guy that, or the toughest guy that there is, you know, that he did that. If that young man had swatted Tom Mizzo's hand away, mm-hmm. if that young man had, uh, you know, shouted back at Tom Mizzo, shouted him back down, he'd be out. The whole uh, dialogue would have been oh. completely different. It wouldn't have been like Kevin Green getting back in the coach's face and and fighting back. It would have been this young man doesn't understand his place. And that that is alarming to me, you know? That is. I also wonder if the I remember that Panthers incident. If that had been a black player popping Kevin Steele, I'm not so sure people would have cheered it on the same way. But. You're right. 
And I think this also this also fits into a broader cultural conversation of how do we talk about very difficult things like this, mm-hmm. be it how do you coach someone hard, but there is a racial dynamic, a power dynamic, all sorts mm-hmm. of other dynamics in that. This isn't the only place in our culture right now where we really struggle to have difficult conversations in our culture yes. that come through. And I guess uh, – what can this particular incident illuminate for the rest of society in the U.S. in general of how do we have conversations about difficult things or how do we react in crisis moments or how do we react in times of difficulty? How do we talk to each other right. in those times I effectively? Mean, part of what needs to happen is we need some new language. We need a new script. I mean, you can almost predict how people are going to react to these things. The same kind of tropes around, you know, like I said, the the kind of defensiveness of white people like this isn't a big deal this isn't but instead of being able to say let's stop for a minute and let's think about let's do a power analysis like let's just talk about power that's what race is about just let's talk about that and what in our culture are we saying are you know kind of life-giving generative um uh, you know, kind of encouraging ways to use your power when there's a power imbalance, and what are abusive, you know, discouraging, diminishing ways to use your power. That's a discussion all workplaces are having because that's what's coming up with sexual harassment and uh, racial disparities and wages. This is all about power. So, you know, when we have a kind of iconic moment like that for our culture. It's a great opportunity to, to say, okay, what is going on here? And why? what are some of the dynamics um, that we could parse out and say, we think that's a problem, we don't think that's a problem, and here's another way to do it, or here's a way to hold someone in power accountable. That's the other thing we're not great at. We usually just either it's bad enough that we get rid of them and, we, and they are shunned, <laughs> or we just justify it and cover for them. There's an in-between place where accountability can actually really be transformative for a person. We don't give people that opportunity very much. It's interesting because I, as a coach, came up in the NFL. Most people you know, start in college and then go to the NFL. I started in the NFL in the power differential in the NFL is the players have the power and the coaches don't. Mm -hmm. And in college, the coaches have all the power and the players don't. And so, you know, as you were talking, I can remember always thinking to myself, I can get upset. I can get upset and I can speak in a strong voice and, and, and assertive voice. I can even raise my voice. But make sure you're giving them concrete answers and coaching points. In the NFL, I would never tell somebody they were uh, lazy. I'd tell somebody they're not finishing the top of their route. Their last step, they shortened it down. And for us to go where we need to go, you got to get that step down. You know, and I could certainly raise my voice. I would never tell a, a, a player that, you know, they're just getting their butts kicked. I say, you're, you know, they're lower than you are. You got a same foot, same shoulder, and you're off balance right now. Let's find, you know, and I could raise my voice doing that. 
But if you're not offering constructive coaching coaching yeah. in the NFL, the players will tune you out. And many players that I coached were older than me. And I'll never <laughs> forget Steve Berline saying to me, he was a quarterback for us at Carolina, and he was significantly older than me. He said, I don't give a crap how old you are. I don't care anything. If you can help me get better, I'll listen to everything you say. But if you're BSing me, I'll tune you out for all time. Yeah. And we had a great relationship because I never BSed him. And, and, and I'd always try, but I could get on his tail probably as well as anyone, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting dynamic that you're making me think about right now. I came at the college game through a different lens than probably mm-hmm. 99% of the coaches did. So one of the more encouraging, I think, if we're, if we're casting about for little iconic moments of mm-hmm. this tournament so far, one of the more encouraging ones for me is all the athletes that have responded to the NCAA commercial about their <laughs> yes. about a day in the life. And um, I love it that there have been parodies and, you know, there have been a f- lot of funny tweets where, you know, athletes are like, where was the five o'clock workout? You know, that room was a lot nicer than the one I live in. Um, all the different things. Um, where's the coach yelling at you? Right. That I kind think, of stuff. If being an athlete is part of the college experience for this, for mm-hmm. the for these players right now who are on television and making their schools lots of money, something else I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, to me, what really struck with me with what you said earlier was about what if a professor had yelled at a student like that? What if an mm-hmm. administrator had yelled at a mm-hmm. student like that? And I, that's such a perfect example of how collegiate sports, major revenue collegiate sports at the very least, are just play on different rules. It's a different – they don't have a college experience. They don't have the freedom. They they do have a job. Which, the, which again, this commercial does yeah. not show that no, accurately. To them. Especially the part where he was like out just kind of, kind of dancing and having mm-hmm. fun. I mean, I know that's one of the things that players often would talk to us about is that they just – they don't really feel like a part of the campus. They, they're they kind of sequestered over in the athletic building. They don't have any free time to go to gatherings on campus like a black student, you know, caucus meeting or, um, you know, they don't have time to do any of those things. They're at study hall at night. They're practicing. They're going to class. They're li- lifting weights. They're checking in for injury treatments they eat with athletes um so i mean a more you know a kind of more um accurate depiction would not have made the ncaa look real good absolutely so. not. obviously this is their television bonanza the ratings for the duke central yeah. florida game were well above any game from last year so wow. obviously they want to put their best face forward even uh, if it's right a fake face well, it, it's, <laughs> they wouldn't be the only per, only institution oh, no. or culture that does that. Oh though. no, but, you know, it's right. called propaganda. It did strike me as pretty tone deaf as well that there'll be so many athletes watching this, seeing that commercial, and that young man going through his day was 
comical to me. It was comical. And Marsha talked about, you know, the player's schedule. It's very intentional that in an off season, especially, that workouts start at 5 a.m. and study hall ends at 9.30, 10 o'clock. It's very intentional because you don't want the players to have a, a coach does not want those players to have free time um, because of distrust, frankly. The more free time players have, the more, quote, a coach might say, trouble they could get into. And so it's very intentional that uh, morning workouts <coughs> occur at an obscenely early time to make sure the players get to bed early. Uh, and that um, uh, uh, study halls go till 9.30 at 10 at night to ensure the players aren't uh, coupled with a 5 a.m. workout to make sure the players aren't doing other things in the evening. That's intentional. I've been in the meetings where coaches have said they ain't going out if we do this. Well, there's a lot of infantilizing of these young men that happens. Um, our son's a freshman in college and um, at University of Arizona, and he plays rugby, which is not an NCAA sport. And, you know, he has – he's not – they don't have as much control over the players. Let's put it that way. Um, but they still have some, and they still have expectations. But he has had to learn some really hard lessons – and sometimes John and I'll say, well, God, that would have never happened with a football player. Some of the stuff he's had to navigate and deal with in the dorm or out on the campus or whatever. And and it is because of what John's describing right there, this very tightly controlled – and it, it's infantilizing. They don't get to just figure stuff out because mm-hmm. if they make one mistake – it can kill an entire program. And, and to think about it, I mean, outside of maybe what I think you might be referencing, some of the things that happened that you saw in North Carolina, mm-hmm. but just sort of, I'm going to say run-of-the-mill transgressions, but the things that players could get into if they're out, they go to a college party or they're just out, they have free time, that's not those things that they could get in trouble for. That's no different than any other any student other on this kid. campus. But it's criminalized oh. for athletes. I <laughs> mean, if they're caught smoking weed... Which, I mean, let's face it. they're caught drinking under 21. Let's like, face it. Most students we, are doing that. Right. We, we could go into any fraternity house at a major state university right now, and you'll see young men's behavior that's 10 times worse than anything I've ever seen with an a athlete. But if an athlete does but it. But if an athlete did that. It would be criminalized. Especially with Facebook now and Instagram and videos. It would be all over the place. I mean... So they don't get to learn those normal lessons. They don't get to figure out who they are. They don't don't get to make mistakes. I mean, they really don't. And I think about all the things that our son has just had to see and figure out for himself and even stuff that his teammates have done and stuff. It's just like how... That 
as hard as it is a parent to like think, oh gosh, that sounds kind of chaotic. But mm-hmm. it, I mean, he's had to figure it out, mm-hmm. and that's what college is for that's people. What college is, and it's building resiliency and building, yeah, uh, building the critical thinking and the ability to react and adapt. And, and a lot, of, I would think, as a football yeah. coach, you would want players who would know how to yeah. be resilient and adapt, right? You, you would. But there's always an element, too, as a coach, that you risk losing your job, too. When I was coaching in college, if a player missed a class, if a player missed a class, our staff knew about it within the first 10 minutes of the class. Before the class was even over, I knew if a guy missed a class. Mm-hmm. I mean, I asked my son if he went to all his classes, <laughs> and he says yes, but I'm not naive, too. I also know sometimes he misses we, classes. We all had experiences. We all went to college, too, so yeah, yeah that happens. I didn't go to that 8 o'clock French class <laughs> all the time. Right. <laughs> but, but, but the NCAA certainly is, is clearly trying to have it both ways. Okay, how much is it NCAA, and how much is it is the schools? The schools are the NCAA. Right. So, I, I mean, mean how they, much is this – the university is setting this policy of we don't want this happening. We don't want the. the it's the too bad costly. The, it's this too costly. is the coaches. The, this is the coaches okay. saying we're going to keep these guys on such a tight schedule. I, I mean, this schedule now is year round. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no summer vacation for uh, 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 football teams in Division One football. Right. None. Zero. Probably basketball there is the same. Basketball, and, yeah. and I mean, in the month of June and July, we want to know exactly what those players are doing twenty four seven as well, because we feel like our jobs depend on that, and it is. It. Uh, but the coaches are employees of the university, so again, this really comes down to mm-hmm. the university wants it this way, the institution wants it this way. Obviously, as you said, the NCAA is just made up of institutions, but... Right. Well, there's a lot of incentive to control this. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a cash cow, so you know, when money can be made, a system builds up around it to keep making the money. So, if this wasn't a billion-dollar business... I mean, like, again, rugby is a good example. That's not a billion-dollar business. They're not just hounding those guys, mm-hmm. you know? They're just, they're just not. So I think if, they're, if the money wasn't, you know, kind of in play there, then I think it would look different. I, I mean, you were a Division three football player. I don't think they were following your every step. No, I made a few mistakes <laughs> <laughs> and missed a few classes. So again, a kind of connected little iconic piece to in this tournament is some of the discussion around um you know just the distribution of of the spoils of all this and um you know some talk about well some of the parents can't afford to travel there their kids are in the sweet 16 their kids are in the 32 
and they can't travel. And, you know, the NCAA made a policy in January of this year to to make it permanent that they will pay for the parents of players in the Final Four, for two family members of each player in the Final Four, men's and women's, to get $3,000 to travel. If you make it to the Final Two, you get $4,000. And that they, you know, they've, they're have they really touting this as, you know, we're just so happy to to do this benefit for our athletes and to make it a permanent policy. Um, and I think, again, it's another example of um, let's just try to lower the resentment level. Let's try to rein it in a little bit because people are starting to complain and parents are frustrated. They want to see their kids in this big showcase games. And, and so they're like, okay, well, instead of actually cultivating some equity, like these, these players, if they decided like, you know what, I'm not playing if my parents can't be here, they wouldn't be making that billion dollars. But instead of saying what's a more equitable way to distribute these, um, the spoils of this, they just give a little crumb and hope that that'll tamp it down a little bit. Um, when, you know, parents have been begging to like come and just sleep on their kid's floor or something like that, it's, you know, it's just a kind of another example of how out of whack it is. It really is. It, it, it has been my experience that parents have really gone to extremes to try to watch their children play. And frankly, I'm going through that now. You know, our son goes to college 3,000 miles away. 2,000. 2,000 miles away. <laughs> and there is not a direct Asheville to Tucson flight yet. No, no. there's not. But but nowadays, with the Internet and with it, mm-hmm. that's not that unusual. Sure. You know, I mean, there's still in sports some regional recruiting, but the really big-time programs recruit nationally. And it wasn't uncommon uh, for us in North Carolina to have players from California. And those parents wanted to come to the game. And sometimes they were able to come, sometimes they weren't. And I'm sure sometimes there were players, parents who found a way to come and it may have been. Yeah. A hardship. may have been a real hardship. You know, uh, I know parents that have come to visit and stayed in their kids, you know, apartment because they couldn't afford a hotel once they got there and stuff. And they were just glad that our kids were staying in the hotel the night before a game. Parents are calling coaches now to ask if they can sleep on the floor of the hotel room whenever their kids are playing in this tournament. Surely with a couple of billion dollars, we can (laughs) pay for parents to go watch their kids in this tournament. But again, that to me, paying for people's parents to go watch a game is not the answer. Right. You know? If they paid the players. If they paid the players, then they could do it. Well, I've been in the NFL. 
It ain't an issue in the NFL. Yeah, NFL players it, flew it ain't an issue. half their family. Your families could come, and you got... Now, the, the biggest issue in the NFL was always players bartering tickets, you know? I mean... Coaches, st- too. Coaches, yeah. too. You, you might... Like, if I was going to play at Pittsburgh, I might need eight tickets, but yeah. I only got two, so I'd get six from other guys... Mm-hmm. And then, then give promise them, them that hey, a week down later or something, I'll, yeah. I'll use their mine. But so, that all of that can't be done in college. So, can we talk a little bit about how the money gets distributed? Well, that topic we'll have to wait for next week as we'll do our second annual Final Four show. So make sure you join us for that. And thanks for listening to this episode of Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Let us know what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.